my name is Sean. I moved into the area in 1992. Uh, I worked, uh, just left university, studied electronic engineering, 25, felt the call of God upon me. And I was working at Fujitsu on the southern in, in, uh, industrial area in that big kind of high-rise building. So I used to run around this area in my lunch times. Uh, so I know the area fairly well. Went along to Kerith. It was Bracknell Family Church at the time. They named us. Uh, Reading Family Church after themselves, then changed their name to the Kerith. I don't think that was fair. Um, so I came out of the Kerith. Ben Davis would be my spiritual father. I don't know if you've heard of him. A mighty man of God. I love him deeply. And uh, so in 2001, I quit my job. At the time, I was a European marketing manager for Dell Computers on the other side of the A329M. I was always running around. But we'd started a small group in Reading in a scout hut. Uh, a lot scruffier than this is your first venue. In a scout hut in Whitley in the south of Reading, just 15 of us gathering together. Uh, that was in 2001. And right now, uh, I climb, or my daughter climbs weekly at their center. So I feel like this is like a home for me, this whole area. But in September 2001, I quit my job at Dell. Uh, there was, uh, at that point, we got up to 25 adults and seven kids. You're way ahead of us in your early days. As Kofi said, we're now about just over 500 plus adults meaningfully with us. There's more than that adults, about 150 kids. And this summer, we're planting our first church into the Middle East. Uh, and uh, so I can't say the location because I know on SoundCloud this is going to go. But we're sending a team, uh, a key eldership couple, a key trustee couple, and some others are going from our church. Uh, we're out in the Middle East uh, last year. We're really excited. feels a big step for us. And the reason I'm telling you this is maybe you've just come along today or, or maybe you've just been coming for a few weeks and at the moment it seems small here, but the kingdom of God is advancing and Jesus is a good builder and, and his people are excellent material when they yield themselves to the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Now you know all of this. But even when I arrived here today, there just didn't seem to be enough chairs out. Leaders think about these things. And, and you've just got to recognize you're not going to be in this space for much longer. And, and you've got to believe for that. You've got to plan for that. I've not got to my preach yet now. But I, I'm sensing God is with you. Uh, as soon as I met Owen a few, two years ago, actually, something like that, I first met him. I sensed God was on him. I didn't realize he then popped up in Wokingham. And I just sensed the hand of God is with him. And so we're believing God for him to do something significant. I don't know what that means, where that's going to look like, but I think you feel it as well. I think that's why you're in this room now. And whether you have team nights, information nights, I think the right material is in the church to do something unique, unique here in Wokeham. Can I pray for us? I don't know whether you've zoned out now or not. I don't know whether your phone's tingling and that's already competing uh, but I do know the Spirit of God wants to do something this afternoon. We're just not marking time till communion. I'm believing the Spirit of God is going to stir your heart. So, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're always with us. But I want to pray that now, in a tangible way, you'd illuminate Scripture. There'll be a fresh understanding to the teaching of Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit, to finish sentences. Uh, just to organize my thoughts. To faithfully... Uh, repeat and to explain the things you've spoken to me uh, about for this evening. So help me, Holy Spirit. I pray for good soil in this room. I, I pray that seed would fall and take root 30, 60, 100 times of what's been sown. 
I pray for it, oh God. If where you are now, how you want to just say to God, I'm ready to be good soil as best you're able. Just if you've been into sin today, these last few days, just confess that to God now. Get a clean sheet. We've sung our songs. Let's prepare our hearts. Holy Spirit, here we are. We're here. We're here, expectant, hungry for you to be at work in our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen. This is my 30-year-old Bible. I was given up my baptism in 1990. And so it's great. I've, I've got to hold it further away than I used to in order to read it. But this evening, afternoon, I'm continuing. I think this is the last in your sermon series. Is that right, Owen? Looking at the great I Ams. Um, getting to know Jesus in his own words. Just straight from the Bible. That's where we're at this evening. And tonight, we're going to be looking at Jesus said, I am the vine. I am the true vine. Now, I'm sure Owen has said this already, that to understand what the text, what Jesus is saying, you've got to understand the context. Have you heard that before? To understand the text, you've got to understand the context. You know this. So why this horticultural analogy? Well, in Jesus' time, everybody wanted to have a vine, or better still, a vineyard. If you had a vine or a vineyard, you had uh, a fruitful vine, you could make wine. Wine was safer to drink than water. Wine brought joy. Wine was all about celebration. So to have a vine was desirable. Why would you not want a vine? Because if you had a vine, you could have wine. And then if you had a fruitful vine, you could have lots of wine, and your house would be the party house. So why would you not want to be the party house, uh, the place where there would be celebration and joy? It's a little bit like uh, Sam in his house that he's got. He's got like, he hasn't got a hot tub yet, but he's got an outdoor bar, patio area. The hot tub's coming. His will be the party house this summer. He's that kind of family. Everyone would want a hot tub. Maybe that's not your thing. I don't know what he'd want here. But in those days, for Jesus, everyone wanted a vine. Uh, that was a sense of, hey, I've made it in life. But they also knew not that you wanted a vine, but they understood that grapes don't just grow abundantly. Vines needed to be cultivated. What they needed is someone to be a good gardener. To have a fruitful vine, that required skill and attention in order to cultivate it. When we moved into our house in Reading in 2000, I went straight out into the garden. We had a skip delivered. I hacked the garden down, not knowing what I was doing. There's a massive, I thought, shrub tree weed that I hacked down before my wife realized it was a very mature clematis. My wife hasn't yet forgiven me for that. But, so it, it's not just about going out with enthusiasm. You need, for a vine, didn't just grow and was abundant. It had to be cultivated. They needed to be pruned. The gardener or the vine dresser, depending on your uh, understanding, what they do, they remove some of the branches in December, the ones that hadn't borne any fruit the last summer. They'd remove those in December. And then in the March time frame, the beginning of spring, they'd go through again and they just cut back the branches that had created fruit. That was called pruning. When they got rid of the ones that were unfruitful, that was called cleaning. And so they understood that a, a vine to bear fruit needed to be attentive in December. You need to cut through the branches that didn't bear fruit. And in the March, springtime, the branches that had borne fruit previously, you cut it back hard 
And those were cumbering through a vigorous harvest. So to bear fruit, vines needed good soil, needed plenty of water, they needed sunlight, but above all else, they needed the constant care of an attentive gardener. And then the desired fruit that gladdens the heart of men and women would be found in abundance. And everyone knew that in that day. That was the context. That was their normal. Are you with me on that? Finally, let's read from the Bible. Great. So John 15, verses 1 to 4. John 15, 1 through to 4. This is Jesus talking, remember? We're in the upper room with his closest friends around him. Owen talked about this last week. Thomas asked that brilliant question. Where are you going, Lord? We don't know the way. We've got those great answers. So we're in the upper room. He's talking to his closest friends. And he says this, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So that will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Jesus is saying that he is the true vine. And I've already said that the original hearers of this teaching, they would have understood and been familiar with literal vines. Everyone wanted a literal vine. But they also knew that this vine, it was a metaphor It was a word picture. They knew that as God's people, they were carrying a cultural story collectively. And they were living under this. They knew that Israel was God's vine. So all all the guys in the room, the men and women, they would have been Jews. They would have known we are known as metaphorically, we are God's vine. Psalm 80, verse 8 to 15, it says that God took his people out of Egypt like a vine. He took them out and he planted them in a good land where they were well watered. They knew that they were taken out of Egypt. They were established. They were watered to be God's vine to make the nations glad. That's what it was all about, mission, about going to the nations. The nations would be glad because they had access to God's vine. And they knew that was their calling. So the idea is being that Israel was supposed to bring God's joy and celebration to all, to gladden the heart of the nations. That was their cultural story of the Jewish people. But Jesus is saying this, Israel had failed in that because they would not receive the skill and the attention of God the Father as the gardener, as the vine dresser. So Israel had failed in that. They should have been the joy to the nations because the gardener was working to bring forth fruit for their joy and gladness. But they failed because they said, we don't want this gardener's pruning. We're going to not listen to the Old Testament prophets or the law given to us to make us a fruitful vine. They kept rejecting the vine dresser. And Jesus says, so the gardener has pruned them has cut them away. They're now useless. They're no longer going to bear any fruit. They haven't borne fruit. He's going to clean the vine. He's going to cut them off. And then he declares, I am the true vine of God. That Jesus is going to receive 
God the Father's skill and attention, and he's going to bear much more fruit. And that Jesus, as the good vine, he's going to bring joy and gladness to the nations. And Jesus goes on to say that he is the vine and that his followers, that's us, obviously thousands of years later, we're the branches of the vine. We are the branches. Let's read on to John 15, 5 through to 8. John 15, 5 through to 8. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So this is all about gospel fruitfulness. This passage isn't primarily about a mystic communing with God. It's all about gospel fruitfulness. The branches is what we are, and Jesus is the vine, and those who remain in him are the branches. Now remember again, Jesus, he's speaking to a closed audience. These are his followers, those who, in their opinion, have given up everything to follow Jesus. This is not the crowds now. He has gathered those closest to him. And it's just before Passover. They've eaten a meal. And imagine if you're, even now, he's, he's washed their feet. I mean, culturally, that is so awkward because, you know, he's the master and yet he's washed their feet. And more than that, he's, he's predicted that one of them is going to betray him. I mean, that's an awkward moment, isn't it? One of you is going to betray me. And Jesus knows who. And then we get Peter. I love everyone likes Peter. Top boy. You know, Peter denies him. He said, no, 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 no. no I, everyone, I will never deny you. And then Jesus goes on, which I looked at last week, that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We get this sublime teaching in this upper room. And he goes on, and Jesus says, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to leave you on your own. I'm going to send another, the Holy Spirit. And he's always going to be with you. It's better that Jesus went. He could only be at one place at one time, but the Holy Spirit can be with all of us. You know, Jesus limited himself to one place, but now the Spirit of God is within all of us. It's remarkable. And now he's using a vine branches metaphor to speak of gospel fruitfulness. His followers are branches that need to be connected to him. We're supposed to be branches that remain in the vine of Jesus. We're supposed to remain connected to him. That's an encouragement to us. Because if, if we don't remain connected to Jesus, encouragement, then we are cut off, we're, we're thrown away, 
and we're burnt up. There is this warning. There's this encouragement and this warning in what Jesus teaches to his closest friends. And he encourages them. He looks them in the eye, as it were, as I'm trying to look many of you in the eye, and say, remain in Jesus. You, you, you need to abide in him. You, you need to dwell in Jesus. It's a strong encouragement to you. Be connected to him. Draw up from him. Stay connected, much like a branch is to a vine. It's supposed to be like this reciprocal relationship. They are to remain in him. And his words are to remain in them. And the incredible thing is that when you remain in Jesus, and his words remain in you, then what happens is our prayers would be answered. And and we would start bearing much gospel fruit, and God the Father would be glorified. Someone said to me recently, Sean, God always seems to answer your prayers, which isn't strictly true. But there is something about when you abide and dwell in Christ, and when your prayer life starts to being shaped by the purposes of God, you start to see much fruitfulness in your prayer life. So how do we remain in Jesus? And how do we remain, how do his words remain in us? How do we do that? How do we remain in Jesus? How do his words remain in us? Well, thankfully, God's grace, his unmerited, unearned, unending favor, thankfully, the grace of God compels us. It's not something we have to drum up or be uh, enthusiastic about. His grace, his favor dwells in us and compels us to want to abide. You know, abiding, remaining, dwelling, uh, being, drawing up from Christ is both an attitude and it's also an action. It's not a static, mystical thing. I've been using phrases like, personally, in my own life, Jesus You're here, now I'm here. In terms of just trying to orientate my brain to say, Jesus, you're here. And and now I'm here. I'm going to be fully present where you are, Jesus, which is here. It helps me center on him. Now, I'm an activist. If you know me, or maybe you've caught up already, I'm happiest running up metaphorical hills for Jesus. I love that. I, I don't really want to stand still. I want my life to count So because of the way I'm wired in God, I'm an activist, I need to take action to help me remain in him and his words in me. What I mean is I need to build in daily routines that slow me down to make sure I abide in Jesus. Because I'm an activist, I need to make decisions and choices that slow me down so that I remain, that I abide, that I dwell in Christ Jesus. So I've built in daily, weekly, and termy rhythms into my life just to help me abide in Jesus. How about you? How do Jesus' word abide in you? Now, I, I try to make my daily devotions interesting and varied. Does anyone get bored with their quiet times? Is it just me that gets bored? 
You know, it seems to work brilliantly for three months. Then after that, it's so familiar. There's no life anymore in that. And so I've got to keep thinking creatively. I've, over the years, I've done Bible notes. I've written several verse-by-verse commentaries and then got them published because the diligence of thinking about what I'm doing is so helpful. I feel quite exposed at times when other pastors read them. I think this isn't very good. They're just my own thoughts. But I need things. I, I want to interact with the Scripture. I, I've done Scripture learning. You know, I've used smartphone apps, which generally are helpful. But as soon as you get away from paper where there's no distractions, there's no BBC app, there's no pinging going on, as soon as you've got on your smartphone app and your, your streets, whatever you're using, it's so distracting, isn't it? It's so easy. I mean, you've almost got to say, no, I want Christ's words to dwell in me. Phones are so helpful, but so distracting. But I've, I've done all of that. I'm currently, I'm in an RFC 3. So each, we've got this daily reading plan, as Sam says. And then each day we comment on via WhatsApp, just five days for the week. Few people can do seven days a week all year. Most of us can do like five days probably. That could be a stretch for some. Biannually, I've done the, the Bible in a year. Bible in many in that kind of camp. I've started it 18 times, finished 16. I think that's okay. Every other year, I actually finish it. Praise God. One year, I used it audio. So I read it and had it read to me. It just helps me all the time. Unfortunately, it was on my phone, which is other distractions. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm, stru- I'm trying to figure out how can I daily abide and rest in Christ. Settle myself. I'm an activist. Sitting still, almost... Ah, feels painful because I want to get up and do something. But of course, fruitfulness is not found in activity. Fruitfulness is abiding, it's dwelling, it's remaining daily as best we can. These rhythms, I think through weekly rhythms, for the past two and a half years, for Mondays during term time, I've set a day apart to pray and to fast. So for each Monday, for the last two and a half years, during term time, uh, I don't do any emails. I've got a little cabin in my garden that I built my sabbatical. I love it out there. I sit in my cabin. I've got my little prayer posture. And when I started two and a half years on a Monday, so no IT, I said, I was terrified a whole day to pray and fast. I mean, have you done stuff? It's hard. It's hard. It's great for the first 15 minutes. I've, I've got a whole day. And, and, and food massively affects my emotions. You know what I mean? And because I'm slightly obsessive, I will go for a run in the morning, like a four-mile you know, four run in the morning, so I feel like I'm emptying myself for Jesus. And then I climb into my cabin and say, Jesus, I've exhausted my strength now. I do drink water, and I, I want to meet with you. And those early few weeks and months... They were, they're all about intercession. You know, there's like prayers very broad. It's about worship. I'm just praying through lists. And people would come in the day and, and pray with me. So for the Middle East church plant, they would come in at lunchtime and pray, gather people around, help me to pray. And they would start at six in the morning. Someone would turn up and then we'd pray at lunchtime. Then our church prayer meetings Monday night. Monday night, I'm on my last legs. But I meet with Jesus. And when you're an activist... The desire to just to run on ahead with vigor and energy that God has given me in abundance. To humble myself and put myself under massive pressure the rest of the week. Because I am prioritizing the face and the presence of God. And so for the last two and a half years, I've been doing that. And each term, I'm just wired like this. 
I pursue two days of solitude to get away from the normal hustle and bustle of life and the clamor of activity. Now, that rhythm only works for me because I'm a pastor of a busy church. Uniquely, I get to control my agenda and diary, so don't copy any of that. Most likely, it won't work for you. But what does work for you? Really? Some of you, you're not activists. You're far more reflective. And actually, you need some disciplines that give you a little bit more spiritual vigor and life. Come on. Stop leaning. Come on. There's, there's, there's work to be done for Jesus. And it's good that you're communing with Christ. But, but actually, it's about gospel fruitfulness. Not just me and Jesus. We, we, we want to be fruitful vines. That, that's what we're about. We, we can know God. We, we can know his voice, how he works, his timing. When we get involved and help people because we can, and when we hold back because we know if we get involved and help right now, we will short-circuit what God is trying to do in that person. And when you're a pastor, that's a really hard line to draw because you can become functional saviors for people when they need to lead them to be dependent on Christ. We make disciples of Jesus, not dependence on leaders. That's what we're trying to build. Building, we're not building people into foundation church. We're building them into Christ. And because we build them into Christ, they're part of foundation church. That we, we want to know God. You know, I, I think we're charismatics. Certainly your worship suggests that. Which means we know the power of God in us. Yes, we know days that are dry and it feels like it's discipline. But we can know God. And hear his voice and be in step with him. I cycle with a guy, and uh, yesterday, he's, he's, he's about 32, strong as an ox. He's only been cycling for six months. He's proper annoying, really strong. We just did 50 miles yesterday. We're just coming back into Reading. And I said to him, You have really improved. Uh, honestly, I get a lot of pleasure of that. He's really improved. I said to him, but my concern is we're side by side coming in. I said, my concern is you've really grown in your cycling. He's stronger than me now, irritatingly. And I said, but um, I just don't see spiritual. Are you grown spiritually? And, and he said, sure. He said, I'm so pleased you asked. He said, I realized about a month ago, he's in an RSC3 now. He said, I get up at five in the morning. I'm in the gym on his turbo trainer. That's why he's so jolly strong. So he's in the gym early morning. I do sort of do that for an hour. I then read The Economist. No, I, get, I, I do that for an hour. I then do my quiet time. But then my kids get up. And then that disturbs me. And then I get on the train. And when I'm on the train, I read The Economist going into London. He's a massive high flyer. Lovely, lovely guy. He said, Sean, I've changed that all around now. He still gets up at five and is in the gym. He said, now I read The Economist after that. And that gets interrupted. So I can have half an hour on the train for my quiet time. So I'm, I'm next to him. I'm thinking, well, that's a progress. So I said to him, but I said, can you really have a devotional life on a train? You're not just kidding yourself, are you? Because if all you're doing is reading the Bible, you are shortchanging yourself. I didn't, I didn't get emotional then. I feel emotional now. I don't want Christians shortchanging themselves just because they've done their Bible reading. They feel they've met with God. He does do it that way, but it's more than that. You, you, you know, if you can do that on a train, cool. And, I, and I, I, it went a bit quiet. I asked him that. And he said, no, Sean, it's more than just reading the Bible. I can meet with God. And he said, that time's there every day, five days a week for me. I thought, I'll take that. Have you found a rhythm that works for you? 
Is your rhythm now real? And is it bearing gospel fruitfulness? Because that's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for gospel fruitfulness. Because he did give a strong warning to those who don't bear fruit. Those who are useless for his mission. Jesus said they will be cut off. And they're going to wither. Thrown into the fire and burned. I guess maybe he's thinking of Judas. That's who's in the room. Maybe he was in there. I don't know. But I know that Owen's heart is that that wouldn't be the testimony of anyone in this space. I know that. He wants, he wants every one of you to come through to gospel fruitfulness. Let's read on. John 15, 9 to 17. John 15, 9 to 17. Jesus says this, As the fathers loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's command and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy... I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy will be complete. Oh, I love that phrase. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has known than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Listen to this, it just gets better. You're my friends if you do what I command. Ooh. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. We, we, we do need to think about the command of Jesus. The command of Jesus. In 2003, uh, master and commander Far Side of the Sea was released. It was set in the Napoleonic Wars where the captain of the British ship HMS Surprise... Has anyone seen this movie? What? Man alive. Dreadful. There's too much Bible reading going on in here. This, uh, golly. Well, anyway, it's set in the Napoleonic Wars and Russell Crowe's the captain of a British ship, HMS Surprise, and he's tasked by the Admiralty to take out the Acheron, which is this French ship that's kind of attacking British interests. It is an epic film. Now, the captain, so he's commanded by the Admiralty and then the captain responds by giving commands to his crew. You see, the captain and they had a mission from above. And they've got to fulfill it. And they've got to fulfill it at all costs. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a great movie. It is highly engaging. It's an acclaimed historical drama, albeit it's a work of fiction. But to be clear on this, this contrast to this movie, when Jesus said, I am, his statements, they are not merely historical dramas. They are not a work of fiction. And Jesus, most definitely, is not light entertainment. There is optional whether you've seen it 
or not. It is a classic movie. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is the master and the commander who rightly expects to be obeyed. Jesus is in a chain of command. He lovingly, willingly follows and obeys his heavenly Father. And he expects us to obey him, Jesus. In fact, he commands us to remain in his love. That's what he's telling you to do this afternoon. And he's telling each of us to love each other. This is a command to us. And this command demands a choice from us. And this command must become a conviction in us that we're to love each other, that we're to love the people of God. Love is a command. Love is a choice. Love becomes a conviction. Let me just elaborate that. So love is a command. Therefore, I choose to not take offense. You know, taking offense is a choice. You've chosen now to take offense. So love demands, love is a command. Therefore, I choose to forgive. And thereafter, forgiveness will become a conviction within me. I've been commanded. I'm going to choose. And ultimately, it will become a conviction. I am called to love you. To not take offense, I'm going to forgive you and love you. Now, the words obeying command, certainly in Reading, are viewed with suspicion. I suspect being commanded to love doesn't sit easy with many in this room. We have to acknowledge our culture has shifted. The sense of duty for the greater good has been replaced with, what's the benefit for me? Why would I do it? What's in this for me? We used to say, what's the right thing to do? Now we say, what's the right thing to do for me? We've lost that sense of loving the greater good. The trust in authority has been replaced by mistrust and cynicism. Nevertheless, Jesus has been given authority by God and he commands us to love each other. And more than that, Jesus said, when you obey his command to love each other, we're going to bear much fruit. Just like the branches that are carefully pruned by the vine dresser. Yes, we will bear the fruit of the Spirit. As you learn to love other people, undoubtedly you'll need the, the fruit of love in your life, but you will know the joy, His joy in you. You need the fruit of the Spirit coming forth in peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Galatians 5.22. But more than that, this great I am statement is about God's vine to make the nations glad. The much fruit must include making disciples, Matthew 28. The much fruit Jesus is talking about from our lives as we love each other must include making disciples. After all, Jesus, Jesus now calls us friends. We've been chosen. We've been appointed for this mission. He's told us everything the Father had made known to him. We can know the purposes of God, not just blindly obeying. 
We, we don't just need to obey not knowing the reason why. Jesus now, think about it, he takes us into his trust. I mean, that's amazing. Or at least as much as we can bear. We, we, we just can't clearly cope with everything. So what's our response? Well, Jesus said, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He also said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has known than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus is good for his word. He's loved us enough to lay down his life for us. He took our punishment when he was crucified. He died at Calvary. That death couldn't hold him. The vine of God, the vine of God that seemed pruned hard back. The vine of God that seemed to be taken back right to the stump was miraculously brought back to life after three days. The power of God not only resurrected Jesus, the true vine of God, but now by faith in Jesus, the power of God can graft us into Jesus, the true vine of God. Like small cuttings of wild vines, we can be grafted into Jesus. And then we can draw from the sap, from the living waters of the Holy Spirit. We can then start to bear fruit 30, 60, 100 times what was sown so that the nations will be glad. So that the nations will be glad. In a few moments, David's going to lead us in communion. I don't know who's in the room. Maybe you've been following Jesus for years. Or or maybe you're just looking in. And over the last half hour or so, you've, you've had a fresh insight of the gospel of Jesus. And, and I'm going to just pray very quickly now that what's this insight would grow into you for life change. And maybe that means asking more about Jesus, or maybe it's about humbling yourself. And realizing that you need to think again about how you're abiding, dwelling in the vine. And think again about fruitfulness of your life. Gospel fruitfulness. And what does it mean to bear fruit for him?